morning, everyone. It's good to be back. Thankful to be here at this church. Uh, I get kind of confused when I go, everybody has different liturgies. So I thought you guys maybe had a scripture reading in, uh, apart from the, uh, the, the preaching passage, but, uh, I guess I can read verses 1 through 20 of, I like this big Bible too. Whose is this? I've got this one. This is one that I always preach with. See how big it is? Uh, this belonged to our former pastor who's passed away now. And uh, I think it's the same thing, but this one's even bigger. So this is awesome. All right. So Matthew chapter 15, verses 1 through 20. That's correct, right? I don't have a bulletin up for Okay. All right. Hear the word of the Lord. Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or his mother, what you would gain, what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And he called the people to him and said to them, Hear and understand, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. Then the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? He answered, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. But Peter said to him, Explain the parable to us. And he said, Are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. If you will now. Turn your Bibles to James chapter 1. The passage we will be looking at this morning is James chapter 1, verses 9 through 18. Benjamin Franklin said, Who had deceived thee so often as thyself? Being deceived is embarrassing. But more importantly, 
it can be very, very dangerous. As pastors, it is clear that the scriptures teach that our duty is not only to encourage and inspire with the promises of God, but also to warn against the power of deception. The greatest pastors in the Bible warned against deception. Paul said, Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Again, Paul said, Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. And one more Paul. Paul likes this message. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. The Apostle John also warns. He says, little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. And our Lord Jesus said, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. Well, James is also a faithful pastor. And he wants to warn his audience and he wants to warn us about the dangers of deception. And if you remember, I know it's been preaching through this book, what, like once every month or so, uh, the overarching teaching of the whole book of James is how to prepare yourself for the, for the fact that trials will come, how to count them joy, how to endure them, and how to not fall into traps when, the, when we're in the midst of our trials. And James is concerned particularly about how we can become vulnerable in the midst of our trials and we can be more we can have greater potential for deception when we are in the midst of a trial so let's look at the passage James chapter 1 beginning in verse 9 let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits 
of his creatures. May the Lord bless the reading of his infallible and holy word. Now, I'm a good Presbyterian, so I like structure. Uh, So I have points to my sermon, but they're kind of all over the place. I'm going to start with, uh, with verse 12. It's kind of like the prologue. And then I'll have three points, and then the conclusion will actually be part of the passage. But I'll walk you through this as I go through. I like to have points because it helps people track with you. Uh, our, one of our preaching professors said, people are going to lose where you are. And so when you say something like, now point two is this, they can kind of get caught back up. So, you know, we're not perfect. All right, so let's look at verse 12. Verse 12 says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. The reason I want to start with this verse is because I want you to see that verse 12 is, is basically the main idea of all of chapter 1, and I think it's possibly the main idea of the entire book of James. James wants to unpack this beatitude, this blessing Blessed are the steadfast. And in the pattern of his Lord, he's not only going to teach us blessing by showing us what the blessing is, he's also going to teach us blessing by showing us how to avoid cursing. This is why James so passionately wants to warn us against deceit. Because his pastor's heart longs for us to be blessed because he wants us to endure the trial and guard our hearts against those things that could lead us into deception. So let's look at the specific areas of deceit that James wants us to avoid. The first I'm going to call this the deceit of our status. The deceit of status. And this is verses 9 through 11. In verse 9, James says, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. James starts by addressing what he calls the lowly brother. Now, we may not understand this, but what James really means here is he means somebody who, who is low in their financial wealth. They have little material goods. They have little wealth. And the trial for this person, the person who finds himself in a lowly circumstance, is that they might be tempted to become bitter towards God because they're in a difficult situation. This can cause them to be blind to the truth that their status does not diminish who they are, does not diminish their identity in Jesus Christ. The lowly brother looks at their status and is tempted to speak kind of like the hypothetical person in Romans chapter 9. You guys familiar with this person? James, or, uh, Paul likes to make up people that argue with him in, in his epistles. In, in Romans chapter 9, Paul makes up this person who, who cries out to God and says, God, why have you made me this way? Well, It's true that God is sovereign. He's even sovereign over poverty. And according to 2 Samuel chapter 2, God makes the rich and God makes the poor. So that's true. But the temptation for those who are lowly is to to believe that because of their low financial status, they have little worth. James says that is a lie. You are exalted. Don't believe the lie that your identity is found in your financial status. 
Believe the truth that in Christ you are exalted no matter how much wealth, no matter how much power, no matter how much status you have. Lowly brothers must work to convince themselves that contrary to what the world tells them, they are highly exalted because they serve a God who highly exalts them and loves them dearly. And the other thing is that having wealth and status, that's not the answer to your problems either. James says there are also trials and temptations for those who are wealthy. So being wealthy doesn't get rid of all your problems. It just brings up different problems. Probably the main temptation for anyone who has material wealth is to believe that because I'm wealthy, I'm secure. I am secu- I can take care of myself because I have wealth. Well, we meet a man like that in Luke chapter 12. James tells a story of a man like this in Luke chapter 12. Or not James, Jesus. Jesus tells a parable. There's a rich man who, who harvests all, his, all of his crops and he builds these huge barns. And when he finishes up, he stores all his crops in these huge barns and he feels secure, feels good about himself. And he says to himself, I have ample goods laid up for many years. Now I can eat, drink, and be merry. But what did God say of that man? He said, this night your soul is required. He was deceived into believing that his possessions, his possessions provided real, actual, lasting security. And sadly, Jesus ends this parable by saying, So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Well, James, if you, if you study the book of James, you notice he loves to follow the teaching of his Lord. And this is what he's echoing here. James wants to say to the wealthy, Beware! There is a trap hidden in your wealth. You might not see it, but it's in there. You might start to identify with it. You you might find your security in it. You might find your pleasure in it more than in your Lord. So James says in this trial, boast in what? In your humiliation. Boast about how low you are. Not because you're not valuable to God, but because you recognize that just like the poor person, you have the same status at the foot of the cross. You have the same spiritual poverty. So don't let your status deceive you. In poverty, you can become bitter. You can doubt God's goodness. And in riches, you can become delusional. And you can, you can doubt that God is the only true, lasting treasure that matters. So our status can deceive us. Our status can try to keep us from receiving what James calls the crown of life. But the next deception is particularly evil. Because this next one is us directing something straight at God himself. And I'm calling this the deceit of imputation. This is the second point. So if you nodded off in the first one, you get called up now. Second point. Uh, this is verse 13. Now, I'm calling this the deceit of imputation. Now, all the theologians out there know that we use the term imputation usually to refer to the, the theological idea that Christ's righteousness is, is 
put on my account. It's imputed to my account. Well, it's not the only way you can use the word. The word imputation can also mean issuing blame or assigning an accusation. And in this case, James is saying the person in the trial is assigning blame to God himself. God is to blame. In verse 13, he says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. In your trials, you may actually be tempted to blame God. And this seems to be the problem in our hearts over and over. We come to a hard place in life, and and what do we want to do? We want to put the sovereign Lord on the witness stand as though he is the one who has to give an answer for everything, as though he is on trial. And the temptation to do this is, is logically reasoned out by misusing, once again, the truth that God is sovereign and the truth that God is actually the one who ordains the trial. So you can kind of understand this temptation. In the midst of our suffering, we actually need to be able to cling to the truth that God is sovereign. That's a truth we need to have in our hearts when we're suffering. Because if we don't, our suffering has no purpose, has no meaning. But the deceit comes in when we are tempted to believe that not only is God the one who brings the trial, but he is the one tempting you to sin in the midst of the trial. And James reasons out two ideas as to why God should not be blamed when we are tempted. The first one there is, God cannot be tempted with evil. And the second one is, God tempts no one. So, let's try to think of this simply. God's nature is completely void. Void just means empty. Completely empty of sin. There's no sin whatsoever in God. It's all purity. He is all purity. Therefore, God cannot commit the sin. It is a sin to tempt someone to sin. So since God is empty of sin, he is incapable of tempting others, committing the sin of tempting others to sin. So kind of difficult to reason out, but it's really not that hard when you, when you think about it. And it is kind of difficult for us to, to reconcile But the Bible does teach both that God is completely sovereign over all things and that God is not responsible for any of our sins or any of our temptations. So, if God is not to blame when we're tempted, who is to blame? Three fingers pointing back at you. (laughs) We are. We are to blame for being deceived into sinning. And this brings us to our third point, calling this the the deceit of self. Deceit of self. This is verses 14 through 15. James says, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has fully conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. God's purpose in the trial is for you to overcome. God wants to produce steadfastness in you 
His desire is for you to, you to receive the crown of life that James is talking about. The test, the testing of your faith is the occasion for sin. The testing of your faith is the occasion for failure. It is not the cause of failure. The cause, James says, is us. Our sinful desire, which entices us into compromise. And this is where Jesus' teaching in Matthew 15 comes in. Because James, once again, is following his Lord in this teaching. This is what Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 15. I'm going to read verses 17 through 20 once again. Jesus says, Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this defiles a person. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. In this passage, Jesus is dealing with the Pharisees who have developed what he calls the commandments of men, not the commandments of God, where they believe that the external ceremonies, and in particular in Matthew 15, it's the washing of hands. I know some of you might think, my mama always told me to wash my hands before dinner, right? That's not what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about these, these rigorous ceremonies of washings and over and over and like ritualistic movements and things like that that they did in order to be pure before they came together. Well, Jesus is saying, You have bought into the lie that you can purify the outside and you are ignoring the fact that the impurity is right here. It comes out of you, out of your heart. We are defiled by internal sinful desires, not by touching or tasting things. There are things that come out of us that are more filthy than a mud puddle. Murder. Where does murder come from? Right here. Adultery. Sexual immorality. Theft. Lies. Backbiting other people. All of that comes from right here. James is teaching the same concept here. So James is taking Jesus' idea and applying it to his situation. He says, you are not defiled by the external trial. The circumstances, the situation that you're in, that's not bringing the impurity in your heart. The providence of God is not causing the impurity in your heart. You are defiled by your heart's reaction to the situation, to the suffering, to the trial. And James lays out a progression here. James says, The the desire conceives and gives birth to sin. And those of you who know children, who have children, children want to feed. They want to grow. They want to be nurtured. Except when this child becomes strong and is fully grown, it destroys the one who brought it forth. The point here is that sin 
when it's given into over and over and over and over, becomes stronger and stronger and has the potential to overpower us. J.C. Ryle says, Habits like trees are strengthened by age. A boy may bend an oak when it is a sapling. A hundred men cannot uproot it when it is fully grown. And the warning here from James is that sin is mortally dangerous. Do not treat your, your sin like a pet or a plaything. Do not give birth to it. Do not nurture it. Or it could become rooted in your heart like a fully grown oak tree. And when you are in the midst of a trial, you are particularly vulnerable to the alluring, deceptive power of your sinful desires. John Owen says, There is not a day but sin foils or is foiled, prevails or is prevailed on, and it will be so whilst we live in this world. Your battle with sin is going nowhere in this life. It's not going to end. We're not Wesleyan. We don't believe you can achieve perfection in this life. So don't let your guard down. Always need to be fighting your sin. And if you feel like there's another hypothetical person from Romans 7 that I'm going to mention, another hypothetical person, uh, actually it's not hypothetical, this is actually Paul, sorry about that. So in Romans 7, you guys familiar with Romans 7 where Paul is talking about just his struggle with his, with his old self and his new self. And he talks about this eye and he talks about this eye. This eye is the old eye. This eye is the new eye. So there's a sense in which when your old self is, is doing this, it's not really you. You are really Christ in you. That's the real you. But Paul goes through Romans 7 talking about he doesn't say just because there's a new eye that it's easy to fight against the old eye. He actually cries out after talking about this and says, Oh, wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? Well, if that's how you feel after reading this section of James, that's how I feel, then, then James' warning has done its job. That's what he wants it to do. I, I don't know if we understand this as Christians, but Warnings in the Bible are a grace in themselves. It should drive you to recognize your danger, recognize your inability, and point you to the one who can deliver and who can kill the thing that wants to kill you. Because you cannot. You cannot kill it. So in conclusion, I want to read the encouraging part of this passage. Verses 16 through 18. James says, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. Coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. Do not be deceived. Now, how do you keep from being deceived? You indoctrinate yourself with the truth of who your God is. James says, God is the Father of lights, 
He is the source of all good physical, moral, and spiritual light. God does not change. There's no variation in God. There's no shadows because He's moving. The heavenly lights, the sun, the moon, the stars, they move. They call shadows. But God's goodness never moves. And I think the most encouraging thing James wants us to know about our God is that He has brought us forth by the word of truth. Remember in verse 15, James talked about a different birth, right? A birth that that is conceived by us, by our sinful desires. But here James is reminding us of the new birth. The birth which is more powerful than that birth that comes forth from our sin. James wants you to know that the good God, the one who ordained the trial in your life, and knows that your sin can destroy you, has given birth to something that will destroy your sin. The new birth. This birth is conceived not by your deceptive desires, but by the Word of God, the Word of truth. The Word opens your heart to the truth that God is not to be blamed for your sin. You shouldn't look to God and say, you're the reason I'm sinning. God should be sought out as the answer to your sin. John Owen again said, Christ by his death, destroying the works of the devil, procuring the spirit for us, hath so killed sin as to its reign in believers that it shall not obtain its end and dominion. So heed the warning of this passage and don't give up the fight against your flesh. But if you've yielded to temptation, if you've been overcome, if you struggle with a nagging sin over and over, and I, I believe every one of us do, there's a nagging sin that you're always taking up arms against. Don't give up. And don't be deceived by despair. Don't be deceived by the lies of the devil who whispers in your ear and says, God isn't working in you. If you are grieved over your sin, that's good. That's grace. Take courage that when you recognize your own sin, that is only possible because the Holy Spirit is working in you. But also, don't lean on your own ability to sanctify yourself. Those of you who are familiar with the, with the Westminster Catechism, you might be familiar with the term that, that they like to use. Justification is an act of God's free grace. You ever heard that? It also says uh, sanctification the process by which we were made holy is a work, a work, not an act. It's a work of God's free grace. They are both produced by God's free grace. Therefore, have to look to the finished work of justification to keep from losing hope in the ongoing work that we feel like is never going to be done. Got to look at that finished work. 
to keep you confident that the unfinished work will be done by the one who began that good work, not by you. The same good God who perfectly completed your justification is also one day going to perfectly complete your sanctification. 2 Thessalonians 2, 13-14 says, But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit. Sanctification is by the Spirit. Don't turn to your flesh to try to produce good works to sanctify yourself. Look to the Spirit. So strive for the crown of life. As James says, you want the crown of life? Cling to the truth that you are God's beloved, chosen first fruits, who are sanctified by the Spirit, so that you may obtain glory and that full sanctification, not for your glory, but for the glory of your Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. What number?